This is Joey Coleman, author of Never Lose a Customer Again, Turn Any Sale into Lifelong Loyalty in 100 Days. And you are listening to Authors in Quarantine, Getting Cocktails. Hello and welcome to this hopefully short-lived series that will be airing in addition to the weekly marketing book podcast interviews. I'm your host, Douglas Burdett, and my goal during this unusual time is to reconnect you with past guests on the Marketing Book Podcast, share some ideas and inspiration, and maybe a much-needed laugh or two. I've interviewed over 200 authors on the show, and my plan is to continue this series until I either run out of authors or quarantine, whichever comes first. A word of warning, the host and guest may very likely be drinking cocktails during these conversations. I mean, come on. They are recorded during the cocktail hour. To find the show notes for each episode with pictures of each guest and links mentioned in their conversation, visit marketingbookcocktails.com. Marketingbookcocktails.com. See what I did there? And if you'd like to join the conversation, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com, and I'll try to include it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat. Joey Coleman, welcome to Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. Cheers, and how are you? Cheers to you, Douglas. In fact, here, let's see if I can do a sound effect. There we go. There's a cheers sound effect. Yes. From my root beer bottle to yours. <laughs> Although I know you're not drinking root beer, or I imagine you're not drinking root beer. It's a so. single malt scotch, but that's not important. Um, I, I do remember when I interviewed you about your fantastic book, uh, Never Lose a Customer Again. There was so there's there's so much um, Joey Coleman uh, trivia, or you know, there's just all this thing. <laughs> it's like there could be like a Trivial Pursuit game of Joey Coleman. Like there's probably one about Elvis, and one of them is that. Uh, you only drink root beer and water. And I just thought, that is so cool. But there's so many other things about you. Uh, you know, you you grew up in Iowa, but it wasn't on a farm. Correct. Uh, correct. Which is very important to the people in Iowa. You know, I guess. Well, and, yeah, and to, and to be clear, I love it. My grandparents had a farm. My brothers and I and our spouses, we collectively own a farm. But I didn't grow up on the farm because I wouldn't want anyone who did to think I was claiming farm cred, street cred that yes. I don't actually have. But and yeah, in Iowa, big, yeah, that's like, a big deal. It's a big deal. It's like stolen valor you, or whatever, you know, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. You're in Iowa and you claim to have grown up on a farm. Oh man, you want, yeah, exactly. You, there's a you better probably really have a, done it. A, there's probably a poser hall of shame. In, <laughs> so in true. Iowa. Yeah. So true. But you, uh, I think you had like six siblings and your dad's name was Joe, Joey, Joe, and your grandfather. And uh, then you went off to Notre Dame and you were the second author I interviewed uh, from no Notre Dame. The first was uh, Sean Callahan. Nice. Wow. Not Irish sounding name. <laughs> nice Irish. Enough. Irish sounding name. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no gray area on that one. Eh, Sean? I love it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he's, he works for LinkedIn now and he's a fantastic author and uh, we're still waiting on approval for LinkedIn to uh, give him so he can come on this uh, little uh, series. But then nice. you were, you were an attorney and you practice, I guess in DC, but it gets even more interesting because at one point you is, if I'm not mistaken, you worked in the white house, but you also worked for the secret service and the CIA. 
You are correct, sir. You are correct. Yes. Man, I've never been more nervous. Eclectic path. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, I kind of did a, uh, when I went to Washington, D.C. to go to law school, I had a number of goals. And one of the goals was to work for the Secret Service, the CIA, and the White House at some point during my time in D.C. And thankfully, had the pleasure of accomplishing all three of those goals. Worked with some absolutely amazing people in each of those uh, organizations and just had some incredible experiences as a result. Wow, I I can't imagine. Well, I guess your next book should be about how to set and reach your goals. Very Yeah, (laughs) or or how to... uh, not hold a job and call it an eclectic career path. One of the two. No, I, every every job I ever had, I learned a ton from, and then I found another job that I was even more excited to do. So it's it's been a fun ride to say the least. Yeah. And then, well, let's jump ahead to the book though, because your book really had an impact on me. I ended up buying it for clients too. And so if your book sales- You're so kind. Every- <laughs> You're so kind. I appreciate that. The book sales you know, there's, there's not a higher compliment you can get than someone enjoying your book and then getting the book for their clients and knowing the hundreds upon hundreds of business books that you've read, Douglas, I am quite flattered. So thank you for that. Well, I loved it. And I I still think about it. And then I see companies who are doing maybe not all of the, the eight steps in the book, but several of them. And I'll say, oh, yes, they're, they're, they're doing it. Yeah, based on what I saw. But also, you know, there's things that even a small agency like mine, we can, we can try to do to work in to, to go through those, through those processes. And, but how, how did you get, well, I guess the other issue is sort of like uh, Marcus Sheridan's book, because we were just uh, chatting about him, where, you know, they ask you answer is just so in, ingenious and it makes so much sense that there was like no daylight after I read either of the books. So like, <laughs> God, I can't argue with this. Well, I, I am flattered to be in the good company of my friend Marcus Sheridan as well. Yeah, Marcus, I mean, brilliant businessman, brilliant uh, theorist and tactician and practitioner, and just the nicest human being you would ever want to know. Like such a great guy. Yes. And like, sorry, setting the scotch bottle down there. Um, I, uh, and, and say so he's such a, a great communicator, a clear communicator. Once a few years ago, I even got some training from him. Uh, he gathered a group of agencies in Richmond, Virginia, and we were able to uh, participate in some things. And I still use some of those things. So I always describe it as going to marketing church. When yes. you're hanging out with Marcus, it's like a revival, a church ceremony, right? Yes. I mean, he's, just, he's, he's so passionate. He's so dynamic. And man, that guy... His, his heart is bigger than the room he's in. Like he just serves in such an incredible way. So it's not surprising that he would come up with this amazing principle of they ask you answer, which is such a, and I say this respectfully, such a basic thing that most companies completely fail at. Completely. That's, that's one of the many things in his book that was so amazing is he's he had this career as a pool person. And I just uh, got to... In, uh, yeah, I was going to say he was the most... When we're recording this, he was, I think, your most recent release. Yeah, we, I published yeah. it today. And yeah. so he, he said that... Uh, you know, he had this successful career as a, in, in the pool industry and then went on to do other uh, things in addition to still running the, the pool business, which is now a manufacturer. But he said like one-tenth of one percent, he, he goes and speaks to pool industry conferences. And he said maybe only one-tenth of one percent of those people in those industries are doing 
what he's yeah. described. And it's just like, it's just a shame at that point. But, um, but enough about Marcus. Let's talk about Joey Coleman, okay? Because Alrighty. we need to talk about Joey because he's already been mentioned by some other uh, luminaries like Scott McCain and, you know, all these other people that you meet on the, on the speaker stages uh, around the world. And talk a bit about, if you could, this, this 100 days concept, because it is in the title of your book, and some folks may not have heard that interview, and I'll link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookcocktails.com. And, and there'll be a picture of Joey that I took that I think all of you will like. <laughs> and, um, or, or they haven't read the book, but explain this concept. And you go around the world talking about this, and I don't think you're ever going to stop talking about this concept. Is it, and it's all, maybe in part because companies don't get it, but it's just so powerful. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, and I, and I hope not. I hope to not stop talking about it because I think it is probably the most overlooked aspect of business today that companies, if they turned and focused on it, even just a little, it will revolutionize how their business operates. So let me provide a brief overview, if I may. Please. Most businesses spend a ton of time, money, and effort trying to get new customers, but they spend very little time, money, or effort trying to keep the customers that they already have. I started doing research on this, boy, at this point, it's more than 20 years ago. And what I found is that in the first 100 days of the customer life cycle, the customer journey, with day one being the day that they decide to sign on the dotted line or hand over their hard-earned cash and they officially transition from being a prospect to being a customer, if we were to start a stopwatch on that day, day one, and let it run to day 100, that time period is the most important time period in the entire customer journey. And the reason it's so important is that because regardless of which industry you're in, somewhere between 20 and 80% of new customers will decide to stop doing business with you in those first 100 days. 20 to 80%. Um, in banking, it's 32%. In software uh, service, it's about 20%. Uh, in uh, the auto mechanic industry, it's 68%. In the restaurant industry, it hovers between 40 and 98%, depending on what kind of business or what kind of restaurant you have. So the moral of the story is all these people are coming in the front door and officially becoming customers, and they're running out the back door before you really have the chance to build a relationship with them. So if you focus on this first 100 days, and on day 101, the customer is feeling great about the relationship, they're feeling great about the connection they have with you, in the typical business, they will stay for five years. That's why this first 100 days is so important. And... You say in the book that, as, as I recall, this is where you say, you know, you just have to do a little bit better. <laughs> right, have to be perfect. Right. Oh, exactly. If, if you just Slightly keep, better. Yeah, just um, uh, 5%, if you can keep 5% of the customers leaving, as I recall, it, it can increase your profits by 25 to 100%. Just Absolutely, 5%. Yeah, 5%. And that what's crazy about that uh, statistic, Douglas, is that the research has been proven time and time again by Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, uh, the folks at Bain Consulting, 
this the whole quote that I that I use in the book comes from a gentleman by the name of Frederick Reichelt, who's the gentleman who came up with Net Promoter Score that oh, many right. of your listeners are fa- are familiar with and fans of and use in their businesses. All the data shows this: if five percent of the people who are going to leave instead stay, profits go up twenty five to one hundred percent. Now. I imagine some of your listeners, Douglas, might have been told that there would be no math in today's episode. And that's it. that was the condition that I agreed to come on the show, folks. Uh, Douglas has already broken the terms of the uh, interview requirements. Spoken uh, like a true lawyer. Math. That's totally fine. That's totally fine. But no, here, let me explain the math because th- this number was shocking to me in the beginning when I first looked at it, but it makes a lot more sense when you break it down. The typical business is already running at a profit. So each incremental dollar more of that is profitable because you've already covered your fixed operating expenses. When you have a long-term relationship with a client, you recoup the acquisition cost and each additional dollar they spend becomes more profitable. Not to mention the longer we work with a client, we're able to be more effective and more efficient, but usually charge higher rates over time. So the dollars become more profitable by the very nature of the longevity of the relationship, not to mention what it does to your overall cost of operating. Yes, and I have a feeling that probably makes for happier employees. Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) Customer experience and employee experience are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. As you shine up one, the other side gets shiny too. As you improve one, the other side improves. If you're not paying attention to one, the other one goes down as well. Yes. Yeah, so, Joey, the reason, one of the reasons I liked the book so much is because, I mean, I, all, almost all the books uh, on the show have been just phenomenal books, and it's been a great learning experience to read them and talk to the authors. It's just something I, I really love doing. Now, the ones that sucks, I'll give you a list of them right now. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> Actually, I would actually love to know that list. Several, a uh, few of them never made it to the- Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I know some of them never make it on the show, right? You choose your read. But, and, but here's the thing, folks, that's okay. The only way we're able to truly find the gems and the books that will make an impact in our life is being re- willing to at least start some books that just might not hit. And that's okay. Yeah, right? we, we, we should have no guilt about stopping reading a book or reading a book and getting to the end and going, okay, well, that wasn't really what I was hoping it would be. That's okay. Just keep reading. Well, see, the, 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 a little bit inside baseball here. The, the issue is I get the books and then I have to decide very carefully which ones because there's only, you know, 52 weeks out of the year. Right. There's, there's a lot more that are now coming in. You know, you get on a list and they say, oh, you know, we heard of this person. So uh, the, the issue then becomes I have to kind of look at the book, but I can't completely read it. I read the first chapter. I study it. I see if it's a topic I like and that I know the listeners would enjoy and so forth and so on. Well, uh, and normally that's enough. You know, it's, uh, I think it's, and also I know if they had a, a, a grueling editorial process. If I know the author suffered at the hands of an editor, <laughs> I know it's, I know it's going to be better. Oh, and bless so, those editors. Bless yes. those editors. Well, you know, I suffer for my art. You know, you authors, you yeah, suffer for your yeah, art. No, so. absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm married to an editor. I get it. Oh. I get it. Yeah. So my oh. wife is a freelance editor. She edited my book. My book was edited by uh, Tucker Max, who's a well-known yes. uh, writer and runner, runs a company called Scribe. And my book was edited by uh, an amazing writing partner. I worked with Sarah Stibitz, who has edited you know dozens of business books. So my book had been edited by three people plus me 
before it ever went to the publisher who yes. then went through a whole round of edits. So I appreciate the benefits uh, and the, uh, how shall I say, gauntlet that one runs right. when having their work subjected to editors. And but I did important. get, I got a note from your doctor saying you did indeed suffer uh, pain. I did, I yes. did, so, yes. yes. Um, but the, the, what I was going to say was occasionally, uh, just over the last five years, just a few times, a book has gotten through and then I'm reading through it and I go, oh no. <laughs> How did this get past me? And but but a couple times they were they still had really good information, and they made for a great interview. Okay, so they just weren't as well edited as I thought they should be. Sure. I'm, no, I'm no editorial snob, but then there were a couple times where the interview was bad, and I later found out or figured out that there were just a couple times where the author didn't actually write the book, and I knew more about it ah. than they did. Gotcha. And I gotcha. guess this happens more often, but uh, at sure. any rate, then anyway, I had an interview and it was terrible and I had one of my colleagues listen to it and I said, you know, maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm usually wrong about these things. And he listened to it and said, that was terrible. <laughs> Don't publish that interview. So all I could do was send the, the guy an apology note and say, I, I'm sorry, I didn't do a very good job of, of uh, interviewing. But back to um, what I, uh, the reason I, there are certain books that I particularly like, and it's not because the others aren't well-written, but because I can, it's so directly applicable to me and, you know, in, in an agency and working with clients. And here's what I mean. And the, the, the question I'm ultimately going to ask you is why am I running into this? But first let me explain. So when I'm, when we're talking with new clients, or even if I'm just giving a talk on, you know, basics of uh, marketing or some things that people should know, businesses, maybe people who don't deal with marketing, I'm always explaining to them this concept that before you go running after new business, are you selling as much as you possibly can to your current customers? The revenue is that much faster. And even in your book, as I, I think I've got my notes here, there's like a 5 to 20% chance of making a sale with a new prospect and selling to an existing one is maybe 60 to 70%. And Correct. Uh, yes. It's, it's exponentially greater likelihood of closing the deal when you're selling to someone who's already done business with you. Yeah. So there's guys like you and Nicholas Webb and Noah Fleming, and they've all you know written books about this, uh, maybe customer experience or just selling more to your current customers before trying to get new ones. In part, because if you get a lot of new customers and you're not taking care of your current ones, it's like, a, it reminds me of a Groupon deal where <laughs> Groupon right, deals right. just ruined a lot of businesses because they couldn't handle the demand and then it wasn't very good. So what we've, and there was another one called Bullseye Marketing by Louis Gadima where he said, if you're trying to prioritize your marketing, the middle of the bullseye should be on your current customers. In other words, he's talking about in terms of marketing to and selling to, not so much the customer experience, but he's saying, start with your current customers. They already know and like and trust you and they want to buy more from you. Then start looking for your, then start going out, you know, then start going after your targeted accounts, then go after your marketing generated leads. And so I still feel so, and everyone's like, no, I want more, I want more new business, want more new business. And I, right. I'm starting to run out of, um, sorry, this is turning into a therapy. <laughs> Patience, <session>. energy, <laughs> well, stamina like, to handle this yeah, conversation. Well, I hear you. I think CFOs maybe grasp this more quickly, but it's sort of like, what else can someone do to help them realize that before they start throwing a bunch of money at trying to get more customers, they should be focusing on their current customers because it's actually faster revenue growth and it's better for the employees. It is. It is. Um, so 
to the best of my ability, Douglas, I have wondered about this same thing for decades. And the best answer I've been able to come up with is the issue, the problem. This is caused by the fact that those people are human. Okay. And what we know about humanity and biology is that we are more intrigued by the chase than by the catch. Yes. We are more excited by what is new than what is familiar. Mm. And there are things at a biological, you know, biochemical point in the brain, in the feelings receptors throughout our body, there are signals that get sent when we're doing something new, different, uncertain, uh, exciting, etc., that trump in our bodies and make our bodies react more positively than the behaviors that are rote, routine, familiar, consistent. Doesn't mean we don't need those things. Mm -hmm. It just means we're naturally drawn to what is the shiny object, right? The different thing. And so I think when we acknowledge that as humans, we're predisposed to do that and that it is moving against our predisposition as humans to focus instead on our customers, we have to then figure out, okay, well, if we're going to focus on our existing customers, what can we do to add some excitement or pleasure over there to counterbalance what we're missing on the chase for new business? To me, things like, profit, things like easier to close, things like long-term relationship, actually, if we really look at them, we'll trump those other things and we'll be better than those other things and allow us to kind of say, okay, this is a better environment. This can be exciting as well. I agree. And I also think that a lot of companies or humans, you know, uh, they take sort of a lottery ticket approach to marketing. Like maybe we'll strike it rich or the, the, the funny thing in social media where they all say, we want this to go viral. If we can just get Mark Cuban to tweet about this, everything's going to happen for us. And uh, the other thing that it brings to mind is uh, an author uh, from Canada named Noah Fleming. And he's written books about selling more to your current customers. And he's written books like Evergreen and Customer Loyalty Loop. And sure, sure. there's a story uh, that he tells about how he was sort of, I mean, he gets frustrated trying to, his life's work now is trying to help companies uh, realize this. And he said that he was uh, speaking in Washington, D.C., former stomping ground of uh, one Joey Coleman, at a conference of accountants, I think. And uh, so he had to speak right after lunch, which is, you know, Joey Coleman, you'll, you'll know about That's probably not the best. I know that thought. I know that <laughs> right. thought well. So he was uh, up there on the stage and he said, the reason companies focus more on getting new customers instead of uh, selling more to their current customers is because they're addicted to sex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The listener has just driven off the road. Exactly. And, exactly. And, but he Douglas was- said it, folks, not me. <laughs> What he means by that is what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, biology. He, yeah, he's saying it's that... biology. It's that simple. Like, it's the thrill of the chase. He said it more directly than I did. Yeah. yeah. The thrill of the chase, and it's sexier, and you're the, you know, the fighter pilots or the cowboys, or you know, you're the whale hunter bringing it in and slicing it up. And Whereas the other side is maybe more like farming versus hunting. And yes. again, this is a circular conversation because we come back to 
the earth and the farming and Iowa. Yeah, I was going to say, not surprising that a kid who grew up in Iowa would eventually alight on, yeah, you know, why don't we just plant these seeds and nurture them until they grow instead of being excited about, well, what am I going to plant next week? Well, what about the following week? How about we plant something different? Any farmer that did that would lose their farm within one season. Oh, like and they would be ridiculed. Be done. Oh, they'd be ridiculed. They'd lose it. They, their family would go hungry. I mean, it would be just a disaster, mm-hmm. right? But it, it is the human condition. And I think the, and the reason I say that is not to, you know, be all philosophical, but it's to acknowledge that making this shift to paying more attention to the customers you already have is going to require a commitment. It's going to require a shift in the way of thinking. And it is going to, when you first start doing it in an organization, do not be surprised if you face a lot of resistance, especially from the salespeople who Mm. are predisposed and who are incentivized in most organizations to bring in any business, not the great long-term business. There are very few organizations that pay commissions on renewals Mm -hmm. for their salespeople. Now, the smartest companies do. The smartest companies say, we're going to pay a commission to our salespeople for year one, but that commission is going to go up in year two, and it's go up even higher in year three. And we're going to incentivize our salespeople to bring the right people in the front door from the beginning so that we can have a long-term relationship with them. But that's not how most organizations work. Most organizations present, hey, we need you to hit this number this month. And that kind of spray and pray tendency of let's just throw it all out there and hope for the best is about as sophisticated as most marketing and sales initiatives get. I'm not saying that to you know belittle those folks, but it is incredibly, uh, I find it incredibly interesting that the conversion rates are much greater marketing to your existing customers than to new customers. And yet most organizations don't seem to invest their time, money, or their effort towards those type of activities. Yes, it brings to mind years ago, uh, when I, in the 1980s, when I was working at the J. Walter Thompson ad agency in New York City, and they had the oh, sure. Ford account. They had it in the Detroit office, but uh, for all those keeping, uh, for all those playing the home game. And, uh, they had the Ford account and they'd had it for ages and ages. The number one target audience for Ford advertising was Ford owners. <laughs> yeah. That always surprises yeah. people when I, yes, they were trying to advertise to their own people first uh, and, and foremost. So Joey, you are in your home in Colorado. Is that right? I am in Boulder, Colorado. Okay. So, and, and I hope that you're, you and the, the family and the kids are, are, Safe and healthy at this point? I appreciate that. We are indeed, yes. So we've been uh, self-isolating, quarantining, if you will, for today's day 38. Not that anyone's counting at home, but we actually went in kind of early compared to a lot of people. And I, and I say that only because um, I have the joy and I mean, literally joy of my life is having friends all over the world. And as I started to look and see what was going on, particularly with some compatriots in uh, Italy, I realized that this thing was a lot worse than we were being told here Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so with a six-year-old and a four-year-old, we just kind of looked at it and said, you know what, we're going to 
we're going to batten down the hatches a little bit earlier, even though we're not required to. And then shortly after that, Colorado has actually been a great state as far as taking action early on this. Um, so yeah, so we've we've been here for a while now. Well, that's good. And for somebody that travels as often as you do, do you do you get sick? Do you do you catch colds? Do you get the you flu? know not often. Actually, I, I thankfully have a uh, historically a pretty high tolerance to illness. I think part of the reason being because I am subjected to so many different germs in so many different environments. I think that my immune system has been built up over the years. I also think that my incredible wife, Barrett, who cooks all of our meals here at home, uh, since she came into my life, I have done a much better job of eating healthy and paying attention to what I put into my body. You know, mm. granted, as we started this, I, I do have the occasional root beer if I'm celebrating or enjoying a good like conversation you are right with now. a friend, like I am right now. Uh, but as a general rule, other than that, I drink water, right? Mm. And I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to make sure that 50% of my plate is the color green. You know, that mm. th these things like little tiny life hacks that make a difference. I do not exercise as much as I should by any means, but since I got my aura ring, I pay a lot more attention to my sleep score. It's oh. gamification of sleep. Hey, guess an, aura, an aura ring? Aura ring, yes. O U R A, aura ring. It's basically a ring that has built in sensors that monitors my temperature, my heart rate, my breathing. It's, it's basically all the biometrics that you'd measure, like with an Apple Watch. Uh -huh. But I wear it as a ring. So I actually got one sized to fit my wedding ring finger. And I wear it instead of a wedding ring. Like I wear it as my wedding ring oh, uh, with my wow. wife's approval and sign off. And she thinks it's great too because she wears one. But one, ever since I got that, I now pay attention to, okay, the number of hours you log in bed asleep is not as important as the quality of the sleep you're getting. So I've been one of those people who's been fortunate to never need a lot of sleep. And part of the reason for that, which we've learned from the data on my aura ring, is because I'm a very effective and efficient sleeper. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I don't lay in bed for two hours thinking before I fall asleep, right? I get in bed, I put my head on the pillow, and in under three minutes, I'm asleep. Oh, wow. And we have the data to prove it. And I sleep, I almost instantly go to REM. Oh, right. Wow. Most yeah. people sleep for an hour or two before they go into REM. It's like a waterfall. I fall asleep and I immediately drop to deep sleep. And then I pop up into REM and then to deep sleep. I go back and forth between those two until I wake up the next morning. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy. So the, the benefits of technology, folks, right? There, there's these things out there that allow us to look and, you know, some will say, well, hack our biology. I just look at it and, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, you know, as a lawyer, I tend to be more evidence-based, right? And I'm just like, well, show me the evidence, show me the facts. I'll look at mm -hmm. them and, and I'll make my decisions accordingly. So we're, we're not sure. We may have actually already had this um, I right not long after we went into quarantine, I got a killer headache followed by a sore throat that hurt when I swallowed and a cough that would keep me up at night. Um, and that lasted for about three or four days. I'm not sure if I had it or not. Um, but I know I was on an airplane at JFK when the head of Port Authority publicly announced that he had gotten COVID-19 and said that he believed he got it doing a site visit at JFK. I was literally sitting on an airplane at the terminal at JFK when I read that breaking news. So who knows? Well, yeah. the, 
the joy of the crazy world we're living in right now. So I'm checking it out. I'll include a link to it at the show notes, but it's O-U-R-A ring.com. And I'm gonna have to check that out because I used to have a Fitbit and it broke and I stopped using it. But I'm one who wakes up after seven hours completely rested. And I feel bad that I didn't need to sleep more, but I think I may be the same way where I fall deeply asleep and just a little bit of a marketing book podcast host trivia. Once while training in the army, we were on the mach- uh, shooting these machine guns at, at night and, uh, you know, watching the tracers and all that sort of thing. Sure. And um, I mean, that was night. Okay. That's when I normally sleep. And so you didn't get to shoot the whole time. There might've been three or four of you, you know, taking turns and doing different kinds of things on this, on this range. Well, I just went ahead and, Decided to go ahead and check out and just fall asleep right there on the machine gun range. On the range, yeah. Right, right behind yeah. the weapon. And this uh, paratrooper from the 82nd Airborne came by and saw what I do- was doing and he kicked me in the bottom of the foot. And I won't tell you what he said, but those guys are <laughs> professional yellers. They but are. But that was just like I could. And of course, when the kids were born, I apparently they cried uh, during the <laughs> night. And, uh, <laughs> and you missed it. Well, here's the crazy thing, though, about I, I've, I've had the pleasure of uh, working with and knowing a number of forces, a uh, number of folks who have worked in uh, special forces, the 82nd and, you know, SEAL teams and Delta and that type of thing. And what they will actually tell you is the ability to fall asleep at any given time, regardless of what's going on around you, is actually one of their best skills. Mm. So, so while see, he may I have kicked you, yes, the fact of the matter is, Part of the reason that he got that job as being a paratrooper is because he could do what you were modeling. Well, and I, he was clearly just a jealous bitch. <laughs> I, did I say that to him at the time? I, I, no, I per, but you're, you're a smart guy, Douglas. You're a yeah. smart guy. I highly doubt that. Which reminds me of the time that at airborne school, and we've both jumped out of perfectly good airplanes. I, we I have, we have. Yes. Yeah, I was not getting shot at at the time. I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> yeah, well, nor very was I. thankful for nor that. Nor was I. So, you know, uh, that's a good thing. But I, I remember jumping out, and they said, uh, or it was a part of the training leading up to it, and they said your 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 form is bad. You're supposed to anyway. Your form is bad, and of course, they articulated that <laughs> in another way. You look like you know, and so I. I he, that was all the feedback I was getting. And so I had to go a couple of times and it was almost going to you know, kick me back a week or something because apparently I wasn't uh, doing the proper form as I jumped from the, mm-hmm. what was the fuselage. And I finally said, uh, Sergeant Airborne, can you be any more specific? <laughs> <laughs> well, that made Which it worse. Which endeared you so well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, not really... It's yeah. kind of more of a don't ask questions type <laughs> right, environment, right, right? Right, you know? That's right. So, well, you know, I was young and still learning. And, uh, but anyway, uh, Joey, what, what are you seeing? What kind of questions are you getting from folks? I'm wondering, based on what you uh, know and have experienced, what kind of things do you think are going to change or what things were already out there that are changing that are going to be accelerated and, and, and stick? Uh, going forward? Yeah, I, I love this question, Douglas, because it's actually been the main thing I've been thinking about in the last few weeks since all this happened, because I think it is highly unlikely that we don't experience significant change on a local, state, regional, national, and global level following this pandemic. Never in the history of the world has the planet ground to a halt 
for a, for an event like this. I get a lot of people will make reference or allusion to, you know, the 1918 influenza epidemic. The problem with that comparison, while there's a lot of similarities, is that it didn't hit everywhere in the world at the exact same time. There is no one on the planet right now who hasn't been impacted at the very least indirectly and most likely directly by COVID-19. They're either in isolation, in quarantine, they're hearing about it on the news, they're watching the count of infection rates and death rates. Like this has permeated our society. And the psychological and the mental impact and emotional impact of that, I think, is going to far outweigh the physical impact and the financial impact. Now, I'm not saying the physical impact of death and the financial impact is not going to be significant. It is. But the lingering realities that go beyond that to mental and emotional, I think are going to make the physical and the financial look like blips on the radar screen compared to what's really happening. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to think about how can companies come back from this? You know, and the fact of the matter is, if there's one thing I know to be true, it's the way you treat your customers and your clients during COVID-19 will be remembered by your customers and clients when the pandemic subsides. Mm. They are going to remember whether you were more flexible with your contract. They are going to remember if you worked with them on a payment plan schedule. They are going to remember if you reached out to check in on them as opposed to reaching out to sell something to them. All of these things are going to be burned into their memory. I mean, you and I, uh, having been in the United States for the last 20 years, if you ask pretty much any American over a certain age, where were you on 9-11, they can tell you in explicit detail where they were and what happened. I think COVID-19 is going to be the same way. I think 50 years from now, you and I could have another podcast conversation. It'll probably be on a holodeck or something like that in virtual reality. But we could have a conversation and you could say, Joey, where were you when this all went down? What were you doing? What happened? And knowing you and your amazing memory, you'd remember where I was. But that, I think, is going to be the reality that is going to be our planet going forward. Mm -hmm. And so the question to me then becomes, if that is the reality, what can we do as businesses, as entrepreneurs, as leaders during this time period to make sure that the memories people have of our behavior are positive ones, that we, they remember that we cared about them, that they remember that we led from a place of empathy, that they remember that we put people over profits. Those are the things that I think will not only help organizations navigate through this unprecedented time of stress and financial difficulty and you know physical lockdown to come out on the other side with a viable enterprise and business. Mm. Have you seen examples of companies that aren't? <laughs> oh, Douglas, you kind of, uh, you, usually my MO and my buddy Dan Gingis and I, we have a, a podcast called The Experience This Show. My usual MO is to only want to tell the stories of the ones who are getting it right. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, uh, it helps me from getting into trouble. 
And number two, uh, we, we get enough negative news by turning on the TV or going on the internet. I like to give some positive news. But like to give you an example. Um, sure, we're not on the podcast but, but, with but, Dan right now. So I correct, want to correct. So I, so, I, so I have some permission to, to go a little crazy. But and here's the thing. I'm going to include a link to that uh, podcast. Everyone should listen to it because it's also Dan, who I've, uh, I've interviewed. Who's been on the show as well. Yeah, yeah. Dan Gingas, br- brilliant uh, social media customer experience guy. He's great. Um, and, and longtime friend. Uh, so let's say this, L- let me, let me speak well, without maybe, naming a company. Well, yeah, name. I was going to say, let me, let me speak without naming some company names. Right? right. So almost every company that you have ever given your email address to ever emailed you within the last 30 days to let you know what they were doing about COVID-19. Mm-hmm. I imagine if you're like me, Douglas, you got a bunch of emails where you were like, why are you even emailing me? Well, like, I, I, I haven't done business with you in decades. What or are you I said, who, who are you? Or who are you? Or why do I care? I've never been to your physical offices and you're telling me what you're doing to sanitize your reception area? Like, objection, Your Honor, relevance. Like, it's just, it's not useful to me. It's not valuable information and it's just more noise. Well, counterbalance. You mentioned, you mentioned your honor. Do you think they might have been doing that to? Oh, a hundred percent for legal reasons. A hundred percent, they were doing it for. Well, they were doing it. I would posit they were doing it for one of two reasons, if not both. Number one, legal reasons of being able to say, okay, we covered our backsides. We we put a message out there. Look how we're being proactive, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Or. Their marketing communications people said, everybody else is doing this. If we don't do this, we're going to look like the fools who didn't do it. So here's the template that we send out, Mm. right? Doing something to be like everyone else or doing something to avoid potentially getting in trouble legally is never a good opening reason to do anything. Mm. I'm not saying it's not a valuable reason, but that shouldn't ever be, I don't think, your motivating factor to take an action. To me, your motivating factor should be, we have people who are living in the greatest level of uncertainty they've experienced in their lives. What are we going to do as an organization that has a relationship with them to let them know that we empathize with the position they're in and provide a little bit of certainty in an uncertain world? Now, just that shift in intention and that desire to have some intentionality behind a piece of communication will solve the problem, will carry the day. Let me give you three quick examples of companies that I think did it really well. As you mentioned earlier, I have the pleasure of traveling all over the world, giving speeches. I absolutely love it. And I spend a lot of time on airplanes. For context, last year, I did 160,000 miles on Delta. Oh, and by the way, I live in Colorado, not one of Delta's hubs. Right. So every time I fly, I'm on at least two airplanes. But the reason I do that is because I love their customer service so much. To my knowledge, they were the first airline to come out and say, no cancellation fees, no change ticket fees. If you don't want to fly for any reason, your event's been canceled up to you just don't feel safe getting on a plane right now. Let us know and we will give you a credit for the amount of your ticket that you can use anytime in the next year which they've now extended to any time in the next two years. I noticed. Right now, some people can come at that and say, well, Joey, that's because they didn't want to have to refund all that money. And in a recent uh, cruise line legal filing, 
it came out that it is estimated that Delta Airlines had $5 billion, with a B, dollars in tickets that customers had paid for but not flown when this crisis hit. So they would have had to turn around and give back $5 billion or give people the chance to have a credit that would ride. Now, as a loyal customer, I chose the credit mm-hmm. because I will fly Delta again. So that was an example of leading first and leading generously. Yes, it had an ancillary benefit to their business as well, but it was exactly what I wanted as a loyal flyer. Mm-hmm. Um, Enterprise Rent-A-Car was, to my knowledge, the first rental car company that came out and said, normally to rent one of our cars, you have to be 25 years old. We are lowering the rental age to 18. Why are we doing that? Because there are a boatload of kids that just found out that their colleges are closing and they are far away from their families and need to get home. And it's probably not a good idea or a safe idea to have their family drive to get them. So guess what? Come in and rent your car at 18 and you can do a one-way drop-off and we'll give you a great deal. Wow. Right? That's MGM. Great. I was scheduled to spend a week at MGM in the last week of March before, uh, you know, I had booked this long before we had the plan. I got the an big, email uh, from the big resort casino. The big resort. Yeah. The, the big, the biggest resort. I believe it's the biggest resort in North America. 6,000 plus rooms. And if you mention in, in Vegas, and if you mention Vegas, you do need to say Scott McCain. Exactly. Scott McCain, our, our, our good mutual friend, Scott McCain, the unofficial mayor of Vegas. Oh, what an amazing human being. So anyway, and I was super excited because I was going to meet up with Scott. Oh my gosh. The, the voice, uh, the voice that sets sail a thousand ships. I tell you, Scott McCain has got an amazing voice. I wish that I would, when I grow up, when my, uh, when I actually go through puberty, my hope is that my voice sounds like Scott McCain's voice. That's, that's what I'm striving for. But okay. That, story, that's the show clip. Okay. That's the show clip, right? <laughs> Uh, long story short, MGM sent an email saying, regrettably, we've had to lock down our and close our resort. You will not be able to stay here. In the next 24 hours, we will be refunding your deposit back to your credit card. No questions asked. Immediately come over to you. You don't have to do anything. We're going to take care of it. But if you want to call us just to confirm here the numbers you need to call, and by the way, we've staffed up so are there extra people to answer. They anticipated what I would want, and they did it without me even having to ask. Mm. To me, those are three examples of big companies. And the reason I use big companies is, number one, your listeners have heard of those companies. But number two, if a big company can do it, your small company has no excuse. I'm sorry, but your small company has no excuse to not treat your customers well during this crazy time. So what can you do? Well, it's like that great scene from the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. If you remember the scene, everybody comes and there's a run on the bank and everybody's trying to get their money out of the bank, which is a disaster for a bank when somebody, because folks, as you hate to break it to anybody, but so that you know, your money that you have deposited with the bank, they don't have all of that in cash at the bank. In what? fact, they have very, yeah, exactly. Shocker, breaking news, newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, here on the uh, Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails episode with Joey Goldman. Yeah, they don't have that money. So there's a scene in the movie where they come and they're asking for the money. And what's so great about it is the lead character says, how much do you need? This is what every business owner, every account manager in the country should be doing right now. In fact, they should have been doing this for the last several weeks. Mm-hmm. Having conversations with your customers and saying, what do we need to do right now? 
do you need to slow down your payment schedule? Do we need to slow down our delivery schedule? Do we need to add in some extra stuff? What can we do to help you now? One of the things I did, and again, I don't say this from a place of ego. I say this to give examples of how this can help. When all of this went down, I reached out to my chiropractor, who I love going to, keeps me and my family healthy and fit and feeling good. And I said, they're going to shut everything down. And he's like, I don't know if we're going to get shut down because we're essential and do to do. And I was like, I get that you are essential and I think you're essential, but I don't know that everybody in the state house thinks that you're essential. So on the off chance that they don't, can I buy a pre-package of 20 adjustments or 50 adjustments or however many adjustments and pay for it today and carry a credit with you? And he was like, wow, that's really generous. He's like, I don't know. And I said, here's the thing. It is important for me that you're still in business two to four months from now when the lights come back on again. Mm -hmm. We can do this. I want to do what I can to help you navigate through that. And I consider myself to be very fortunate to be in a financial position where I could prepay that. But even the, you know, the hairdresser, I went to the hairdresser and I said, I want to buy the next two haircuts. Mm -hmm. Right? So what can you do to help people out where you can? And folks have a tendency, and part of this comes from watching too much news, to think that it only really matters if you can bring millions of dollars to play. I'm sure there are many people listening that an extra $500 this month would be game changer for them. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Same is true of your suppliers and your vendors and the people you do business with. Be part of the solution, not be part of the problem. Let me add to that. First off, I've stopped watching any television news. Um, Probably and, a good choice. <laughs> oh, yeah. So much better, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I believe, I'm not saying don't be informed, folks, but what I am saying is if you're going to do news, read your news. Yes. Don't watch your news. Read your news. And if you're going to read your news, do yourself a favor and read at least 50-50 U.S. news sources, international news sources. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So because it's just, it's good to have a global perspective. This is a global crisis. This isn't a crisis in your community. I mean, it is a crisis in your community, but it is happening globally. The more we can get perspective from other parts of the world, the better we're going to be able to navigate this. Because by the way, a lot of them are further ahead on this curve than we are. They've yes. already been through it. So what can we learn from them? Not only in terms of the science and what's happening in the hospitals, but in terms of business, in terms of our own mental and you know, well-being and emotional well-being, there are lessons to be learned if you're willing to go looking for them. Yes. And uh, actually, the truth is I wasn't watching much television, in fact, um, because the television business model, the television news, I mean, the business model is to get you outraged and get whatever those brain chemicals are that you actually experience in a casino where you, you can't stop. You can't stop yeah, watching. Dopamine you gotta, hits. Yeah. Yeah. Can't got to keep going. I guess they do it with outrage or, or whatever. And so even in the gym, which I can't go to anymore, uh, they, they would have a bank of TVs and sometimes I'd be there. There wouldn't be too many people there. I would go grab the remote control and turn off all the news channels. And I'd put on like a, a sports channel or a weather channel or, sure. or an HG because or a they, sitcom or yes. anything that isn't outrage based yes. and designed to polarize. Right. Well, what I was going to say is that even going to your uh, barber and uh, you're saying, hey, I want to buy the next two from you, that also sends such a powerful signal to them that we believe in you and we're counting on you and you can turn to us if 
you know, you want to talk or if there's something else we might be able to, to, to do for you. I think the psychic reward may be even greater than the financial one by, by making an offer like that. Oh, 100%, Douglas. I, I couldn't agree more. The, the psychological, mental, emotional ramifications of this situation, we haven't even begun to discuss. But what we need to do, that I, I'm a branding guy originally, right? I came up in kind of the branding world. And I think we had a huge missed opportunity by calling it social distancing. We should have called it physical dis- distancing because that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Most people I know are being more social today than they were 60 days ago. I know. Look they're at having this. more phone calls. They're having Zoom calls. They're connecting with family members, with loved ones. They're writing letters. They're doing all of these things that they've said, oh, someday I'll get to those. But now they're making them a priority to build them into the schedule. We just did it with my family. As you mentioned earlier, I'm one of seven kids. We did a big dance party with my parents, my siblings and their spouses, and the grandkids, right? My nieces and nephews and my kids. This weekend, we did a 35-minute dance party where everybody logged into the same Zoom link. Everybody sent me one song from each house, and we DJed here at my house, and we just had a dance party, and then we were done with the dancing. By now, the kids' energy has been burned through because we've got a ton of nieces and nephews under the age of 10. Right. They all kind of sat down and were relaxed and it kind of burned through their energy, and the parents got a chance to connect a little bit, and we all got a chance to see each other. We had never done that before COVID-19. That technology has been around a long time. Mm -hmm. Why didn't we do it? Because of this idea, the difference between physical distancing and social distancing. I think physical distancing has increased our opportunity for social proximity. Yes, yes. And even uh, when I've gone for walks, and I've mentioned this before, but like on March 18th, as we were going into this, I had one of the last elective surgeries to very successfully fix a rotator cuff so that I might one day be able to pitch uh, in the major league. Uh, nice, nice, good. I'll, so, be, I'll be there ready to cheer you on. <laughs> thank you. And it was the left shoulder and I am right-handed, but that's not important, okay? So, <laughs> but um, I had the surgery and everything was great, but, uh, and then the gym closed and the, I couldn't run because my arm is still is in a sling, but it's doing well. And uh, so I had to go on these long 90-minute walks, which I enjoyed very much. And I, you know, reacquainted myself with all these nice neighborhoods and figured out the best places to walk. And it's been really good. But what I've noticed is that strangers were stopping me because they wanted to talk. You know, like nice people from these neighborhoods walking their dogs. And I just thought, boy, that's so true. Everyone everyone is so friendly. Everyone wants to talk. And of course, they'll see my arm in a sling, so they'll ask me about that, or they'll see a, a, a you know, a college logo on my hat, and they'll say, hey, well, you know, uh, I think I know somebody who went there. Hey, you uh. <laughs> Right, right. And here, here's my hope, Douglas. Here's my hope, is that we don't forget that. Mm-hmm. Because here's the thing. Those people that you ran into on your walk were just as curious before but they had come to believe that it was socially unacceptable to yell across the street, hey, good to see you out today. Or how many times have we gotten into elevators with a bunch of other people and not even acknowledge them? Not even a smile, let alone saying something to them. Mm-hmm. My hope is that by having COVID-19 take on all of humanity, that humanity realizes as a species that we're all in this together, 
not only in a pandemic, but every single day. This is the whole principle and really the opening chapter of my book. It's not business to business. It's not business to consumer. It's H to H. It's human to human. What are we doing to acknowledge the humanity of the people we're interacting with and to lean into those human interactions as much as possible? Yes, and I think that having had those taken away from us, we're going to crave and value them even more. I mean, I can't wait to go to another game or a conference or just uh, an electronic rave. No, I'm kidding. I put that in there because my kids will find that Yeah, exactly. I love it. Give someone a hug. You know, I I know you and uh, Scott talked about our mutual friend, Tom Webster, you know, and he had Mm -hmm. talked about, you know, going to a bar, not for the drinks, but to see the other people. Mm -hmm. Like this... We're, I hope that we're realizing just how social we actually are as humans and how much we crave that attention, how much we crave that interaction, how much we crave that physical touch. I mean, I will tell you, I've talked to a lot of speakers. One of the things they miss is the handshakes mm. and the hugs and the selfies with readers and people who are in the audience, not from a like social media ego promotion point of view. But from what it's like to come off stage and have somebody come up to you and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to change the way I do business. Can I shake your hand? Yes. Like that human yes. interaction, which to be frank, the majority of speakers I know, and certainly the best speakers I know, that's why they do it. Yes. They do it because they want to help their fellow human get better at X, Y, Z, fill in whatever topic they write about or talk about or, you know, teach. And I, and I just, I, my, I want us to remember this. I want us to remember what this felt like once we're able to leave our houses again. Mm, I think it's a reset on a lot of, uh, it's, it's a reset in the whole world. You know, you think about a world war, they called on that, but it wasn't like this where it was all over the world. Yeah. That's the thing. I think it's something, I saw something on the news the other day and I'm not sure if this number is correct, but it was something like 96 countries are in lockdown right now. Like that's never happened. That has never happened in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And the ones that aren't in lockdown are watching on the news about all the rest of us that are in lockdown. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is unprecedented. You know, I, I said to somebody the other day, it kind of reminds me of the movies where the aliens invade and it's the alien invasion that gets all the countries in the world to band together and work as humans. I think of like Independence Day, right, Mm -hmm. as a movie or something like that. This is the alien invasion without the aliens. This is the (laughs) alien invasion without... With invisible aliens. With with invisible aliens that are microscopic, who thankfully, while the death toll is significant, entire cities aren't being leveled, right? Like they are in the movies when aliens... Not physically, yeah. Right? Not physically. And, and even when you look at the number of people who are dying, and again, I don't mean to diminish the, the lifelong impact that those deaths is having on the people they leave behind. This would be a lot scarier if the mortality rate for, the, for COVID-19 was the equivalent of, oh, I don't know, Ebola. Right? This would be disastrous. It's already disastrous. But as a general rule, I think we're going to get to the other end of this where almost every American will know personally at least one person who died from COVID-19. They will certainly know someone who ended up hospitalized from it. 
And my hope is that makes us stop and say, how do we need to think about healthcare? How do we need to think about diet? How do we need to think about saying hi to the person we see at the grocery store instead of ramming our card into them and not even apologizing? Yes. Like maybe this allows the best parts of our humanity to come out, or at least I hope it does. You know, it's interesting you say that because my next door neighbor, Rick, had the coronavirus. And then his wife and, and daughter caught it. And there was something about, because I, I hadn't seen him around. And I said, hey, because he's often traveling. He often goes to, mm. you know, um, Park City or, he, you know, they're always traveling around. And I he said, I said, hey, where, where have you been? Because they also have a, like, a place in the Outer Banks. I mean, it's good to be Rick. Don't get me wrong. He's also a very funny guy. But I said, Rick, where have you been? And he's, he sent me a link to a news article that he was about the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in our city, in Norfolk, Virginia. And I said, why are you sending me that link? He said, I, that's me. Not that guy. They didn't, wow. they didn't want to put my name in the article. Right, right, for a it number was, of reasons. Yeah, yeah and yeah, he's yeah. all better as his, uh, you know, oh, Molly you. and that's Sophie. Great. But, that's but, great. But it was something about that personal connection. And I also have heard that uh, Mark Schaefer, uh, who yeah, you? yeah, Mark. Yeah, Mark. Mark has been battling with this, and at the time we're recording, just posted a video today saying he thinks he's on the upward swing. He's been five days without symptoms, mm. and he feels like okay. I, I, you know, according to CDC and WHO guidance, uh, I am on the other side of this. Like I, I'm still, I'm still recovering. I'm still feeling things, but I'm, I'm trending upward, right? And that's yeah. the thing. Every Almost everybody knows someone who's dealt with cancer, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, like my dad, everyone. yeah. And, and, so, and so when we say that, and then when people say, hey, I'm raising money for cancer awareness, it's a lot easier because the second somebody says that, we think of the person that we know that had that type of cancer or had mm -hmm. cancer, and then maybe we chip in a little bit. Now we're going to be able to say, hey, pandemics, we need to pay attention to this. I mean, I, you mentioned earlier my, my past career. Let's just say that... I. Um, how shall I put this? My awareness of the detriment and the destructive capabilities of a pandemic did not start with COVID-19. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll just say that, right? I, I had seen and paid attention to and worked on some of these issues before. Back when you were an international back, man back of in history. Yeah, exactly. Back in the day, right? But here's the thing. For decades, it has been almost impossible to get anyone in Washington, D.C. that works on Capitol Hill or in the White House to pay attention to this. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there haven't been people because there have been some amazing champions saying we need money, we need research, we need to prepare for this, et cetera, et cetera. But to get everyone in agreement about it has been impossible. My hope is not anymore. I think you're right. And it's uh, maybe analogous to people's understanding and awareness of uh, terrorism, at least in the United States. Yes. Before yes, and after exactly. 9-11. Totally different conversation. Terrorism was something that happened over there. Right. Before 9-11. Right. Mm -hmm. Once 9-11 happened, people are like, oh, wait, it can come here too? Exactly. Well, now we're starting to get the same experience. We've known about things like Ebola being in Africa for decades. Mm -hmm. Well, we've known about SARS. We've known about MERS. We've known about these other things, but they always happened over there. Now that it happened here, and it happened across every age demographic, that's the crazy thing. My boys, who are four and six, 
know about coronavirus. They know we can't go outside. We made the decision early on that we were going to be as honest with them as possible without tr- scaring them, right? Because they're mm-hmm. little kids, right? Part mm-hmm. of the, I, I feel like part of my job as their father is to try to protect them where I can, right? It is. But, I, I but checked th- your job description. That I appreciate that. that. <laughs> but, you know, but when my four-year-old said to me, hey, daddy, I heard that the Easter bunny has a mask so she can still come without getting coronavirus. I realized just how much of an impact this is having even on the children in our Mm. society, Mm -hmm. right? And again, that's something that I don't think we're talking about as much as a society. You know, the seniors who aren't going to prom, who aren't graduating, who aren't going to walk across the stage and get a diploma, who aren't, you know, going to be able to uh, have their family. I was talking to somebody the other day that their senior has been working on their grades all along and the school switched to pass-fail and the college that they're going to doesn't accept pass-fail. So there's a question as to whether the college is going to accept them or not. Mm. Wow. Like these are, the ramifications of this are so voluminous and so far-reaching that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. But here's where I come back to a place of hope and optimism. If we just revert to trying our best to be good humans and trying our best to lead with empathy, this stuff all solves itself. Every single piece of it solves itself. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make it that we didn't feel the pain and didn't feel the sorrow and didn't feel the suffering, but it allows us to step into our better selves and show up in the kind of people we hope that we are and we aspire to be. And that is such great advice for any marketing and salesperson. Just be more human. It always was good advice. But, but it was even largely but ignored. It was, oh, totally. To- well, I've had a number of people ask, I've done some webinars in recent weeks, and people are like, well, when is it okay to start selling again? And I was like, well, it depends on how you define selling. Right. And the way you just asked that question makes me say, for you, never. Excellent <laughs> right? answer. Without yeah. a global sea change in how you approach this. Yeah. I was just talking to Anthony Anarino uh, the other day. Uh, he's the uh, author of several fantastic yeah. books about sales. I'm sure you bumped into yeah, him. Yeah. He, he and I have actually spoken at some similar events. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, uh, in one of his books, or maybe two of them now, um, he talks about this concept of sales is not something you do to someone. It's something <laughs> right. you do with someone and yes. for someone. Yes. And he had the exact same question on something he, some group he was talking to. And he said almost the same thing. Like, I think we need to reassess what it is you think sales is <laughs> and what you have been doing. Exactly. Uh, I, I think it didn't have anything to do with the pandemic in that case. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, folks, we're going to get through this. Yeah. My, the thing that I keep coming back to in the conversations that I'm having with my dearest friends and loved ones is, how do I want my life to be different after COVID-19? Mm. So for example, I have now had dinner with my family 38 consecutive nights in a row. How are, they, how are they holding that, up? They're, they're holding up great. They're holding up great. They continue to put up with me, which I am very <laughs> thankful for. But here's the thing. I love doing what I do. I love traveling the world giving speeches. But as a result, it means I'm away from my family a lot. Mm. Now, they come with me a lot, and we travel together a lot, and we take extended sabbaticals together. 
but I'm giving serious thought as to how much is enough. Mm-hmm. How much is enough? How many events? How many keynotes? How many workshops? How many airplane flights? How many bedrooms in a house? How many pairs of shoes? Like at some point, maybe what this reset, to use the word you used earlier, is, is to give us a chance to really look in the mirror and say, am I happy with the person I am right now? And if I'm not fully happy with every area, what do I want to do to make some changes? What do I want to do to think differently, to act differently? Not only within my own life and my own career, but within my relationships, both professionally and personally, with how I show up, with how I navigate the world. Because the thing that I have tried to instill with my boys the entire time that they've been on the planet is that everything is a choice. Literally everything is a choice. Now, choices have different varying degrees of consequences. Choices sometimes have to be made without all the information. In fact, they're often made without all of the information. But there are these inflection points that happen millions of times a day for every human where they have a choice of what to do next, how to respond to a situation, what to say, what to do, where to go, how to be, what to think, what to feel. And I think that this restriction on our choice of movement and our freedom of movement will hopefully produce an awareness of how many choices we've had that we've restricted ourselves on for no good reason. There's no good reason why Douglas walking in the neighborhood couldn't be the first one to say, hey, I like your dog or that's a neat sweater other than the restrictions we put on ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so what are we going to do differently when this is over? Or we were in a hurry to get somewhere for some stupid reason. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For no reason at all. And I don't know about you. I've seen a lot of that still happening. I woke up the other day and I was like, my last week was back to 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 back phone calls, Zoom calls. Why? Now I can tell myself, oh, I'm supporting my clients who are going through downsizing or supporting my clients with figuring out, you know, their customer experience right now or supporting my clients with getting to projects, you know, like mapping their first hundred days that they've known they've needed to do for years, but haven't made the time to do. And now they have all the time on their hands they want. So they've decided <laughs> they've spent time on it. Okay, great. They want, they want some Joey time. Exactly. And, and that's great. And I appreciate that. And I'm so thankful for that. And I spent an hour and a half today building a Lego set with my four-year-old. I Mm. just put it on my calendar. I was like, there is no reason from 10 to 1130 this morning that I can't lock that time on the calendar and go build Legos with my son. Mm -hmm. That is so great. And uh, a similar uh, observation. Well, one thing I want to add is I was talking to Mitch Joel the other day and he was great he, human being. I, I feel like this is the mutual admiration society. Every time you mention a name, it's like, oh, 
That friend. Oh, such a great person. I love it. You know all the good people, Douglas. Well, I'm just I know honored them. to be in your circuit. No, please stop it. I, uh, I I read their books and I've been able to meet them a few times. I'm just such an admirer. I'm like the sports reporter who can't believe he gets to, you know, uh, <laughs> go into the locker room and see these people naked. No, why did I have to go there? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I get to, to know them to a certain extent. And um, Mitch has three little ones at home. And even yeah. when I was talking to him, he said the same thing as, as you did, which was, I, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, you, you form a habit over 30 days, some will argue, and you start to realize what's important. And he's starting to rethink about, you know, just how much he wants, how much, you know, he wants to be, to be gone. And my daughter, as listeners uh, may have heard earlier, she's a senior in college. She comes home yeah. for spring break, and they said, don't come back, and we, we can't do graduation ceremony either. And she was just she's really crushed, and sure. you know, she was a dean's list and student government president and all that sort of thing. These uh, sort she of takes achieve- after her mother. That's great. Yeah, well, her That's mother, <laughs> and, and my, you have a, a lot of brothers. So my older I brothers, I they do. said you would understand this. My older brother said, yeah, Douglas, this thing's sort of thing skips a generation. So, like, yeah, thanks. I love it. I love Blackhead. it. Yeah, so, love it. and they're older brothers. So Yeah, um, exactly. that's the job of the older brother is, <laughs> the, the job of the older brother is to do all the things the father wished they could do, but it would be inappropriate for them to do. That's kind yes. of how I always thought. I'm the oldest brother, so I understand. Oh, that. you are? Okay. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So then I, yeah, this is, this is you, you understand it completely. They These guys are nine and 11 years older than I am. And when the three of us get on the phone, it reverts right back to when oh, I was four years old. Trust me when I say I completely understand. My youngest brother, here, here's the shocker. My youngest brother was born my senior year of college. He is 21 years younger than me. Oh, he wow. could be my child, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we all get together. My, my wife, we joke, the very first time uh, she came to visit my family, we walked into the house and my younger brother, who at the time was about eight, mm-hmm. came around the corner, blindsided me and tackled me over the couch. My poor wife has never even been in the house before. And now the guy she's come with to meet their family has basically just been assaulted in the living room <laughs> and like thrown over the couch and piled on. And then the other brothers jumped on top. And it's like, yeah, that, that's called having brothers. I There's no greater sign of affection. <laughs> there is. That's right. <laughs> amongst brothers. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, we were, she made dinner the other night and, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been great having her here and uh, a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually thinking it's, it's worse for the kids that aren't finishing up because only two months of her life were disrupted. The others yeah. don't even know if they're going back, but yeah. For some reason, we started talking about what her earliest memories were, and uh, we had this long discussion about other funny things that happened when she was little, and it was just the most wonderful uh, conversation, and it was one that we hadn't been having a lot of because we've always been going so fast, or she's been gone, or whatever, and it's just like building the Legos with your son. He's he's probably going to remember that. Uh, yeah. and, and you certainly are. And it's, I guess, you know, somebody could have told me those kinds of things were important, but this has been such a reminder that they, they really are. Yeah. We get, we get to take all the things that we knew were important or we believed were important and actually live them right now. And I think the kinesthetic learning and awareness that is coming from this, as opposed to the theoretical awareness is what's going to actually move the dial and make mm. a difference, you know, because we, we now have it as cellular memory, 
we literally have it in our bones and in our muscles and in our cells that spending time like this with our loved ones has a significant return on investment. Now, not everybody who's listening to this is having a good time at home right now. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And well, they've been I'm having sorry, a good time I'm, while they've been listening to it. Yeah. Well, that's kind. Let's that's kind. Clear, but, yes. you know, but some people are alone. Some people are quarantined in their house by themselves and not with anyone else. And they're dealing with depression and loneliness. Some people are quarantined with someone that they're not excited about being quarantined with. Um, but again, it comes back to that choice. And at the end of the day, we get to choose the lives we lead and we get to choose what type of directions and paths we take. And my hope is that our choices become more conscious after this. Because I don't know about you, I'll speak only for myself. I was making a lot of unconscious choices. I was making a lot of choices that um, were either expedient or I did because I thought I had to or, uh, well, this is the way it's always been done or fill in the blank. And I'm now really looking and saying, well, what are the choices that serve all the aspects of the things I want to do, not just some. So yes, the choice to go give that speech allows me to, you know, be compensated and fulfill that professional need and to teach people and help, but it has a consequence of taking me away from my family. So let's just be aware of what the consequence of that choice is, as well as the benefit of the choice. Mm, Yes. Well, I... I do hope that being on the Marketing Book Podcast what was a conscious choice. Uh, oh, 100%. Are you kidding me? Douglas, <laughs> let me tell you. And folks, you may be listening. I, I have had the chance to be on many, many podcasts, and I'm, I'm always grateful for invitations. One thing that I always know when I get to come on this show is we're going to have a great conversation. Douglas is, no kidding, one of the most well-read human beings I know. He pays attention. He's a thoughtful interviewer, a thoughtful questioner. And what I love about our conversations is that, yes, we talk about some business stuff, but we also talk about life stuff. And that's, I think it's more important than ever. Um, And I think it's important that we keep it going forward. It's the piece of your podcast that I like is when you actually talk to the guest about, you know, things that go beyond their book. The book stuff is important and it's valuable and it's awesome. But you know, I, you're getting that rare chance to interview the author. I like when you ask things that are kind of beyond the pages, so to speak, because mm. that's where we get to experience the author in their full humanity. Well, I appreciate those kind words. And I, I, this has been such a departure and, you know, the people say, why are you doing it? Well, I'm, I'm getting a lot out of it. And I'll give you an example. It's uh, relieving my family of having to talk to me every day uh, for a little while. It's and a gift. It's a gift yes. for your family. <laughs> <laughs> it's like daycare for Douglas. There you go. That, and, hey, you know what? It's important that we just acknowledge our reality. That's right. And it's keeping me busy. It's keeping me out of trouble. But just this conversation alone has been such a, a gift to me. And I hope that the the listener has enjoyed it as, as much as I have. And you know, the last question, personal question I'm going to ask you is that 
Is it true that the thing you miss most about traveling is getting frisked by the TSA? <laughs> you know, I, I am very fortunate that as a regular traveler, I have the TSA pre-check and, uh, you know, all the various uh, global entry, those type of things. So thankfully, I don't spend as much time in the personal physical care of the folks of TSA as other people do. But yeah, no, you know what? I, I alluded to it before. I miss the human connection. I, mi- I love the human connection I have with my family. Don't get me wrong, but there is something magical about being able to walk on stage and feel the energy of an audience mm. in front of you. Um, mm-hmm. I miss that. But what I will say is a counterbalance. Um, I've been connecting with my readers a lot more. I've been getting emails from people reading the book and I've been replying to all of those. And I, I always try to reply to all of them, but in this time, I've had the time to reply to all of them. And it's great. I mean, I was emailing with somebody from Romania the other day and somebody from Tanzania. It's like, for some reason, my book in the last two weeks, uh, it's been international weeks. Uh, I've been getting all these people reaching out from around the world. And at a time where it feels like we're all in this together, that's really comforting. And it's been really fun. Absolutely. And they can reach out to you at joeycoleman.com, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So the email is Joey C, J-O-E-Y, Joey, like a five-year-old, you know, somewhere, C as in Coleman, Joey C at joeycoleman.com, which is my website. And uh, yeah, send a message. Let me know how I can help you create remarkable customer experiences. Now, the last, really the last question, I know I'm keeping you from your family. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. But they've been messaging me saying, can you talk yeah, to them keep a little it. bit longer? They're like, yeah. go for three hours, Douglas. See if you can make it happen. <laughs> and I should say also, this is just more part of the Joey Coleman Trivial Pursuit Edition. When I interviewed him for the Marketing Book Podcast, I'm sorry to talk about you like you're not here, but it was the first episode that had ever gone over an hour. And, <laughs> and for a long time, it was the longest episode until it was later broken. And you know who broke it? Who broke it? Scott McCain. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, let me tell you, we should do a, a three-way episode sometime with you, me, and Scott. The only problem with that, Douglas, is I'm afraid you wouldn't get a word in edgewise. Well, and that would Scott be fine. I have had many, many long-term conversations. One of the joys of Scott living in Las Vegas is every time I give a speech in Vegas, I reach out to Scott. And if the stars align, we meet up while I'm in Vegas. We've also had the chance to share the stage at many events. Such an amazing human. Yeah, yeah. He said he, he said uh, you sleep on his couch. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I don't know. I, I you know I don't know what to believe. But um, now, last question, though, seriously, is yeah. um, there is another book I I've heard because Jay Bear said it on an earlier episode of Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. There is, there is. So I have been uh, thinking about my next book for a while, and so my first book was called Never Lose a Customer Again. My next book is going to be called Never Lose an Employee Again. It's going to be looking at the same first 100 days of the employee relationship because what I found is that employee onboarding and employee experience in the first 100 days is more dispositive to employee retention than any other time in the employee journey. And the same six tools, the same eight phases that we talked about in a customer context, we're going to be talking about in an employee context. And I will tell you, I am beyond excited for this. I didn't realize, Douglas, to be candid, that it was as big of a problem as it is because I've never had more than one or two employees in my entire career. 
um, you know, at any given time, right? I've had multiple employees over the years, but you know, I'm not a guy who's built a company with a hundred employees or anything like that. And the more I talk to my clients who had larger employee bases, the more I realize that employee engagement and employee retention is a huge problem that companies struggle with. And we think we've cracked the nut on how to stop that. And the initial results of some of our pilot case studies and folks that are doing this stuff have been absolutely tremendous. So I'm excited to bring that book to the world. And uh, if you'd be kind enough, come come back and talk about that one. Yes. Well, you know, it's so... I haven't read the book, obviously, but it's so interconnected with uh, customer experience and culture and uh, pr- profitability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and I, I'll be, and I, and I think she'd be okay with me saying this. When I first started talking to this uh, about this with my number one advisor, confidant, the smartest human I know on the planet, my amazing wife, Barrett, um, her first response was, wait a second, employees? Like you spent all this time being the customer experience guy and now you're going to pivot and go be the employee experience guy. And I was like, yeah, but let me explain because I think they're the same thing. And the more didn't, we talked about Didn't you about say it, earlier that it's two sides of the coin? Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and part of that phrase, to be candid, came from that conversation with her. I said, well, wait, I think they're kind of like two sides of the coin. You did. And she was like, well, I see it. And about 48 hours later, we were having dinner and she was like, no, I think you should go all in on this. I, I totally see it. Um, and, you know, we'll see. I, I have never built my business from a point of what can I do strategically to grow my business. I have tried to build my business from the point of view of what is the message or the teaching or the learning that I can give an audience that will provide value and make them feel like their time spent with me was well spent. And so that's, that's just how I built it. And, and plenty of people will look at that and say, Joey, that's a horrible way to scale. That's not a way to build profit over time, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of don't care. <laughs> I just I just don't because the second I'm not having fun at this, I'm quitting and going to do something else. So right now I'm having fun. I love writing. I love speaking. I love getting the, the chance to connect with audiences, whether that's virtually or in person. And I just want to keep doing it because it's I, I feel like I am very blessed and fortunate to be able to have this opportunity. Well, and I and the listeners uh, of the Marketing Group Podcast are also blessed, and we really appreciate you spending so much time with us and uh, visiting us on this special episode of Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails. And that's a wrap. Cool. Thank you, Douglas. I appreciate it. That was a great conversation. Do you always over deliver like this? Oh, you're kind. <laughs> you're kind. You're so nice. I know I know that went much longer than you had planned, and I appreciate it. But I, I was enjoying the conversation. I was having a blast. Oh, so, so was I. But I went and bought a that. lot of extra uh, audio tape today. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. What here's the question I didn't want to ask on the live show. Have I reclaimed my title? Of longest conversation? Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't know. How do I tell how Gosh, long? I hope so. You must. Oh, wait, does it tell me how long it's been recording? 